Mrs. Cleaver. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We're on a mission from God. beginning of a beautiful friendship. And now for something completely different. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Welcome to Where Hollywood Hides. This is podcast episode number 52. My name is Bob McCullough. And my name is Suzanne Herrera McCullough. Hi, Suzanne. Happy New Year's, Bob. Yeah, another year. Before we begin... I'd like to mention one of our favorite sponsors. This is the only place to order flowers online. So whether you're looking for roses, orchids, gift baskets, flowering plants, wedding bouquets, 1-800-Flowers.com has the absolute best in quality and service. And the best way to get that service and the absolute best prices, whether you're looking for delivery across town or on the other side of the world, is by going to wherehollywoodhides.com and clicking on the 1-800-Flowers.com link. So flowers are always the best gift to give. Don't you think, Bob? Absolutely. And Valentine's Day is coming. so That's right. I got the hint. Good. Roses are my favorite. What color do you like? Yellow or red. Oh, okay. Depending on my mood. All right. <laughs> All right. Long stem, short stem, bouquet? L- long stem. The expensive uh, of kind. Of course. Nothing but the best. Um, just want to remind everybody that we are gearing up for the award ceremonies taking place at the beginning of this year. We have the Golden Globes, January 8th, People's Choice, January 18th, Grammy Awards, February 12th, and the big Oscar Academy Award, February 26th. I guess I better get the tux clean, huh? Yeah. I better get ready. Can you still fit into yours? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think we'll be going this year. No? Neither one of us are nominated. Well... Actually, it's, still, it's still a lot of fun to go. Yes. It's been a while, though, since we've gone. Yeah, but what a crowd. It's always terrific energy. And a lot of new faces as yeah, well. Oh, for sure. For you sure. You know, some of the best actors popping up, and there's a lot of buzz, is uh, Jeff Bridges and Casey Affleck, as well as best actresses, Emma Stone, Annette Bening, and Natalie Portman. Oh, yeah. just a handful Oh, Natalie Portman was unbelievable in Jackie. If you haven't seen La La Land, we saw it. And once you uh, get into the fact that it's a musical, it's really good. That's why I'm still dancing. Oh, yes. Yes, you feel like dancing now. (laughs) Right, absolutely. Anybody can tap dance, right? No, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. And before we go on, I... We generally do not mention celebrities that have passed away because if we did, we would be here for an hour. Yeah, every year, every year at this time. But I do want to mention Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. Then I started to look at the list of actors that have passed away this year, and it is astounding. Yeah, it's It's crazy. Not a great year. 15 off the top of my head that everyone would know. I'll make this quick. David Bowie, Gary Shandling, Carrie Fisher, Gary Marshall, Muhammad Ali, even though he was not an actor, he was quite the celebrity, George Kennedy, Patty Duke, Nancy Reagan, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Doris Roberts, Florence Henderson, Alan Thicke, Prince, Debbie Reynolds, and Gene Wilder. Crazy. 
That's it's crazy. Been one of those years. Anyway, we take our hats off to them. These were Absolutely. fabulous actors, and they've left many memories. Yeah. We're good. They're going to be missed for sure. You know, one of the things about being in the entertainment business is you meet a lot of different kinds of people. Many people are fabulous. Many people are not so fabulous. Some people are actually difficult. To... One of the most fabulous people I've ever worked with is our interview guest today. He is a writer, director, producer who had his origins back in what I would call the halcyon days of Hollywood. Uh, let me just read you some of his credits as a director. This is one man now. Keep that in mind. This is not six people I'm talking about. He directed the TV series Jag, Highlander, Zorro, Magna P.I., Spencer for Hire, Airwolf, The Fall Guy, Quincy, Simon and Simon, The Love Boat, Vegas, Hawaii Five-O, Barnaby Jones, The Saint, The Avengers. Not only that, he wrote on shows like Magnum P.I., Heart to Heart, Airwolf, Spencer for Hire, and The Six Million Dollar Man. And in his early years, he appeared as an actor and stuntman in movies you might have heard about. Thunder Road that starred Robert Mitchum, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, Spartacus with Kirk Douglas, The Sundowners, The Guns of Navarone, Tarzan, Tom Jones, The Dirty Dozen, and Cleopatra. There isn't a credit list anywhere in Hollywood like that of my great friend and a really wonderful guy. I think you'll agree, Suzanne. Oh, yes. Very impressive man. Ray Austin. And I loved his accent when you worked with him. Oh, my God. I could just hang around him all day. I think I think our listeners will be able to guess where he was originally from. So I can't wait. Speak to Ray Austin. Mr. Austin. Hi, Ray. How are you? <laughs> Hello. Hello, beautiful one. How are you? I'm fine. It's been a long time. It has certainly been a long time, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And I can tell by the first, the first words out of your mouth, nothing has changed. No, not a lot. I'm just a bit older. That's the difference. So, Ray, this podcast is heard around the world, and uh, a lot of our listeners are fascinated by what we call the classic years of television and film, and other other members of the audience are intrigued about how a Hollywood career actually happens. And you've had an extensive, I mean, I'm not going to insult you by saying you go, you go back to the silence, but you have an incredible history. Very impressive resume. You have a very unique history, and uh, I think people would be fascinated to hear it. So let's go back to the very, very beginning. Give us an idea what your childhood was like, where you were born. Uh, you're obviously not from Texas. No, I was born. I was born in London within the sound of O'Bells. And when, if you're born in London within the sound of O'Bells, like the Queen, technically, you are a Cockney. O'Bells is a church in London which is very near St Thomas's Hospital and Buckingham Palace. And if you're born within the sound of O'Bells, technically, you are a Cockney. So I was born in London. I'm born in the war years when um, the bombs were dropping and Mr Hitler was trying to blow us to pieces and I used to go to school and the siren would go on the way home and we used to run for the shelters. Wow, um, how stressful yeah. for a little it, boy. Oh, it, was, it was very scary. Um, my mother and father were not rich people. My father was a tailor and my mother worked part-time in a garage in Morden. But we just had nothing except what we stood up in and the bedroll which was in the underground for the next night. How old and were you, Ray? I was um, about, I don't think I was about seven then, seven or eight. Just a little guy. I was the only child, and um, they were wonderful, and so were all our family. So so you were educated in uh, England's public school system? 
yeah, in the public school system, except for one part where I went to college. I went to Brighton College, and that was a fluke because what happened was we were being our schools were getting bombed as well as Merton Board Mills was getting bombed. So a lot of children went were evacuated out of London to the country or to the seaside. Because what Hitler used to do, you see, he used to send those planes over at night to bomb London and the heart of London, St. Paul's and all that area and the docks. But on their way back, if they had bombs left, they used to drop them on the way back in the suburbs, like where we were in South Wimbledon and Tooting and places like that. So it got very scary. But by the time they got to the coast or the country, they had no bombs or no, no ammunition left. So they just went back to Germany. So the children were evacuated. Um, we were evacuated with our gas mask and the label round our neck with our name on them. We were sent off to different places. But what I was sent off to was a place called Lansing near Brighton. But when we went to Brighton, they had to put us in schools. So I was one of the lucky ones was put into Brighton College, which people paid for, you know, and you, went, you took big exams to go to Brighton College. And the Brighton College school children and the college kids there really resented the fact that they got all these little Cockney boys and girls coming to their school, you know, because there was nowhere else for us to go. So I, on my resume, I had Brighton College. That's quite a distinction for a Cockney, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, for any of us, you know, because we used to drive the, 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 the toffee-nosed kids, as we called them in those days, you know, insane. You know, we would leave little Cockney kids coming down from London and all their parents had paid a fortune to get them into Brighton College, or they'd, they'd spat exams like going to Eton and Oxford and Cambridge, and we were coming down, taking over. It was, it was very funny in those days, very funny. So at what point did you get bitten by the Hollywood bug? In England in those days, we had the National Service. You had to go in the Army for 18 months. Um, every, everybody had to go in, all, all, all boys used to have to go in the Army for 18 months. It was National Service. So I had to... Um, go into the army at 18 so i went into the army not a very nice person i i, I used to have a bit of a temper and i, I used to get in fisticuffs and that sort of nonsense and get in trouble so that I, when i went into the army i went into the regiment called the royal artillery no choice about it you had to go otherwise you you went to prison um so i went resenting everybody and hating everybody and determined that i was going to do what i wanted to do and no one was going to tell me what to do I wound up in a place called Oswestry in Wales. That was for my basic training. And we used to have to do rifle drill and all this nonsense and PT. Uh, I was always very good at PT. I, I excelled at it. I could do somersaults and stand on my hands and all that nonsense. So we used to have to do this PT and we had a physical training instructor whose name was Tiger Mel Barnett. He was the British weightlifting champion, but he was also in the Army Physical Training Corps. He ran the place for recruits. And we were all compelled to go and do up, down, up, down, all that. And I, I got very lippy one day, quite stupidly, said something back and said something back. So he dismissed the class. He told me to stay back. He said, Austin, stay back. And he was a short man, but powerfully built. And he said, um, do you think you're the cock of the north, which was a cockney expression. <laughs> and, and I said, uh, no, no. He said, yes, you do. He said, you think you're better than all this lot, don't you? I said, no, not at all. He said, you used to get in fights and all that, I hear. So I said, sometimes you think you're a bit of a fighter. I said, I'm okay. So he said, oh, yeah. And he pointed to his chin. And he said, go on, hit it. So I said, no, I'm not going to hit you. He said, nothing's going to happen to you. He said, there's no rank, no anything. He said, put it on there. And I thought about it for a half a second. And when I woke up, 
no. Oh, he knocked me straight. I, I don't even remember lifting my arm up. He knocked oh, me straight out. I was on my ass. I mean, completely out. Uh, he grabbed me by the uh, uh, under the armpit, picked me up, and he says, "Don't come it again. Do what I tell you." He said, "Otherwise, I'll give you another one." Three days later, I was sent to the adjutant's office. Tiger Mel Barnett was standing at the side of the adjutant's desk, and I thought, "Oh my God!" But the agent said to me, he says, Tiger Mel Barnett, he says, you have a flair for gymnastics. He said, would you like to train as an Army Physical Training Instructor? So I went and immediately moved to the Army Physical Training Corps to train as a regimental gymnast. I took to it like flying colors. I mean, I loved every moment of it. And I represented the British Army on the parallel and horizontal bar in the Army Olympics. Um, but then I got my stripes and I was issued out to a regiment and became the physical training instructor for the Army. I finished the Army. I came out with a lot of diplomas, totally out of work. I didn't know what to do. I, the only job I got was a, a teaching gymnastics at a, a boys' club in South Wimbledon at seven shillings and sixpence an hour, three hours a week. That's all I could get. So I was really at a loss. So I went to the, up to London, there was a chauffeur car firm, were looking for drivers, and I took this job as a driver. And um, the manager sent me, and he said, do you want to do, do a pickup at London Airport Heathrow? He says, an actor coming over. So I go down, and who am I picking up? This fellow that comes out to the airport, and he says, hello, are you my driver? And it was Cary Grant. Oh, wow. So I started to look after Cary. Now, 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 when you met him at the airport, did you have any appreciation of what an incredible break that was, what an opportunity? No, no. Okay. No, it was probably going to be a great tipper. That's about it. So he said he may want to go out in the evening, and he wasn't sure. So I, let, I sat in the car and waited one thing, and then I saw him go out and walk a little way down Park Lane towards Hyde Park Corner to a little coffee bar that was there. I followed on down just to see where he was going. And I saw him going to the coffee bar. I started to walk by the coffee bar. He spotted me and beckoned me in. So I went in and we sat down and I had coffee. And this was the beginning of frothy coffee, cappuccinos, you know. Right, right. Sure. And we were sitting in there. And there was a guy in front of Carrie. The guy then grabbed Carrie by the shoulder and I did a Tiger Mel Barnet on him. I knocked him straight on his ass. <laughs> and from then on, Carrie and I were, um, we, you know, got on very, very well. Very, very well. Then they were making a, sh- a series in England, in America at that time. They were shorts. In between the movies, they used to put on little shorts, three or four minutes, five minutes. So one of them was called Joe Dopes Behind the Eight Ball. I remember that. You remember that? Sure. So they had a stunt where they wanted someone to be on a horizontal bar, a parallel bar, do kip-overs over, 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 and then let go into the audience, crash into the audience. Well, they had lots of stuntmen who would sit in the audience and, and let a, a house fall on them, a car go over them. They'd do anything, but they didn't have a stuntman at that stage who could do kip-overs. So Paul Sader said to Blake, he said, wait a minute, he said, there's this English guy on, on, the, on the beach, a buddy of Carrie's. He said, he's doing it all day outside on the sand. He's, he's <laughs> messing about doing it forever. So Paul Sader came to me and he said, do you want to do a stunt in a movie? So I said, yeah, sure. I went along to the set and I did it. I did the uh, kip overs and landed in the in the on the on the stunt guys, which was Freddie Zandar, Charlie Horvat, and Cy Goss, and a few of the others sitting there. And I did the stunt, got paid for it, and immediately 
a representative came to me from the Screen Actors Guild. He says, you've got to join the Screen Actors Guild. He says, you just, you've got to join. Well, in those days, to get in the Screen Actors Guild was gold dust. Exactly. I mean, it took an it, act of Congress it, to get in the Screen oh, Actors Guild. Oh, you couldn't get a ticket. You, couldn't, you had to have a contract to get, get a part, and you had to have a, a part to get a contract. It was a catch-as-catch-can thing. Right. And so I had to join it, which I wanted to, uh, because I'd known about Screen Actors Guild. Of course I do. So about three weeks later, Paul came to me again and said, listen, you want to do another job for the same thing? He said, you're playing a game of tennis, you, you win, and you go to jump the net and you fall flat on your face. So I said, okay, so I did it at the Beverly Hills um, Racket, or wherever it was in Beverly Hills there, somewhere I did it. So they were just starting then a thing called the Stuntman's Association. And so in a matter of about five weeks, I got a Screen Actors Guild card, plus I was a, 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 one of the founder members of the Stuntman's Association with Hoy and Stater and all those. Fantastic, fantastic. It shows you the value of being in the right place at the right time and having some good contacts. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and then the next thing I, I got, which was hard to get in those days, was to get on Teddy O'Toole's answering service. Right. In those days, uh, for the, our audience who may not be old enough to know these things, before cell phones, before answering machines, if you received a lot of phone calls for your work, you had to hire an answering service and pay them a month, monthly fee to take your messages. Absolutely. And, and also, they were they were sort of your agent as well, right? Especially, especially Teddy O'Toole. She was a wonderful lady. A uh, book was full up at that stage when I joined, but she, because of Paul Stater, Paul Stater was her partner. Right. You and, you um, had to you had to be somebody to be a Teddy's client. Absolutely. And yeah. she had her office in Tower Records building. And um, the way they got started off, and they became so popular with Paul Stater and her started off the business, and it wasn't doing too bad. And someone called up for an actor one night, and Teddy O'Toole missed the call. The actor lost the job. She called Paul Staler, her partner, and said to Paul, you know, I've, been, I've done it, I've blown it. She said, I lost Fred Smith, or whatever his name was, his job. And I think the equity call then was a minimum call was, I, I think, about $57 or something like that. And Paul said, pay him pay him the money. So Teddy O'Toole sent him a check saying, I apologize, I lost the job for you. As That's a, check. a good idea. Oh boy, next day their phone never rang off the hook. They rang off the hook and you could not get on Teddy O'Toole's service. Right. And Teddy O'Toole will find you anywhere. And no matter where they were, those girls at Teddy's, I remember once I was sitting in England with Brian Clements' house and Teddy O'Toole found me there and said that I would need back to go back for a job. I mean, they would never give up ever give up and they were marvelous and the next job i got was blake was doing a show called peter gunn and i got called to do a fight in a warehouse sounded like you got busy yeah i got busy i went back to england because betsy drake um went over to england to do a picture with kenneth moore called next to no time and carrie asked me to go over with her which i did then i came back i carrie said to me he's going to do a picture called north by northwest and do I want to go with it, on it with him? And I said, I can't. I said, because I'm on it already. He said, how? I said, because Paul stayed at Dublin and Carrie. I said, and Paul's got me on the stunt team. So he said, that's okay. He said, work both in. And in the end, I doubled Martin Landau on, the, on Lincoln's nose and did the fall from the Martin. Um, was, it, was that actually shot at Mount Rushmore? We shot at Mount Rushmore, but all the stuff was done, all the, the fall stuff and done, it was done at MGM. Uh, uh-huh. They they built it on the set of MGM. We did the, did the climbing and that there. So what was it like working with Hitchcock? Marvelous. Um, Scott was good. He became a good friend, and um, 
you know, that's where it all really started. And I got the other bug because I knew very early on as a stuntman, you know, I did, I really didn't want to stay there. I wanted to be behind the camera. Um, I'd had my chance at little acting parts and one thing and another. That I wanted to stay behind the camera. It's a funny story because we were shooting in uh, the Plaza Hotel. The assistant said they wanted Carrie. Um, would I go up and get him? He was up in his, his suite. So I went up to get Carrie, and the camera was set up in the lobby of the Plaza, facing the elevator. It's the scene where Carrie comes out the elevator to leave the plaza. And I went up and sort of said, Kerry, I said, they're waiting for you downstairs. You want me to walk you down? And he said, yeah, because wherever he went, he was always trouble. People were always stopping him for autographs or someone. So I, you know, got in the way of other people and stopped them doing it as I had all the time with Kerry. Mm-hmm. So we got in the elevator, come down and the doors opened to the elevator. All the lights were on. Hitchcock was sitting at the camera in front of the elevator, ready to shoot. So, but Kerry and I walked out of the elevator past the lights and he went to his chair and the people talked on one thing or another and then they got ready to do the shot. I happened to be standing about two feet from Hitchcock. They put Carrie in the elevator, take him up one floor to bring him down. And Hitchcock looked at me, he said, Ray, he said, what do you want to do with your life? He said, are you going to stay following Carrie around all your life? And I said, no, no. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well... I tell you what I, do. I said, I want my name on my back of the chair like you. <laughs> I like your so, job, right? <laughs> yeah. So he, he, he laughed. He said, well, he said, keep at it. It could happen. For Hitchcock and Cary Grant, uh, North by Northwest was really a very physical movie. There was oh, a, yeah. There was a lot going on. Probably the most action-packed film either one of them ever did. It was a good movie. And then we went off and did Operation Petticoat, a game with, with Blake. Um, I was on the stunt team with Hoy, because Hoy was running it. Robert Hoy was running that show. And because you've had such a unique background, I mean, I can't fill up one hand with the number of stuntmen who've become directors. Hal Needham was the only other one. Right. But but Hal Needham only ever worked normally with Burt. That's right. With Burt Reynolds. That's right. But I worked the world in the end. At any rate, that's what I told Hitchcock I wanted to do, and I was determined one way or the other it was going to happen. So now I go back and do... Uh, odd, odd jobs all round and one thing and another. I knew Kurt Douglas because of Carrie and Tony Curtis because of Hoy, and Spartacus came up. So I worked on Spartacus. The terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the condition that you identify the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Now, Ray, I want to ask you a question. Bob and I Mm -hmm. have gone back and forth on this because the topic came up uh, uh, last year. How tall would you say Kirk Douglas is? Kirk, I would think, is probably 5'10". Well, yeah, I I just want a quick quick story, which I've mentioned on this podcast before. Uh, I was uh, an usher, a page at NBC, when Kirk Douglas made a very short cameo appearance on Laugh-In. And I had been raised uh, in Hollywood and been around a lot of stars and met Elvis and Sammy Davis and all these guys. And I just remember Kirk Douglas walking onto the stage at NBC and I was blown away by what I felt was absolute magnetic charisma. He, uh-huh. he was the kind of guy, when he walked in a room, you just felt this wave of energy. I don't know if yeah. it was his confidence or his intelligence, but to me, that was a real, real movie star. So Bob had told me that Kirk Douglas was at least 6'1". I, I don't think so. I think he's about 5'10", 5'11", my height. And actually, the, the two people that signed my application 
for the Screen Actors Guild were Kurt Douglas and Cary Grant. They, they were my signatures on that that, that you, form. Well, you don't get any bigger than that. <laughs> oh, God. So, so real quickly, uh, looking at your credits, uh, the, the shows you were working stunts on, The Guns of Navarone, Cleopatra, The Dirty Dozen, Tarzan, Spartacus, what was the most dangerous stunt you ever did? A very simple stunt. A very simple stunt was the most dangerous stunt I ever did. It was on a a movie in England, um, which was, it was The Dirty Dozen, but the script was changed later with a, and done The Dirty Dozen. It was a film, war film where it virtually was the same picture as The Dirty Dozen. And they had a stunt there where I was a German soldier inside a tank, and the tank was going along a track. The Americans and the English at the side of the road, one of the Englishman or American, I forget what it was, jumps up on the tank, throws a hand grenade down in the tank, blows it up, and I come out on fire. So I'm rigged for it. <clears throat> I have a uniform that's treated with pet jelly so it will catch on fire. Inside the tank, I have a detonator to let off a smoke charge, purely smoke, to come pouring out of the tank. Um, very simple stunt. Doesn't sound so we, simple to me. It was simple. I mean, you know, I'm in a, in a tank. The tank is going along. Enemy come up, which is a British or American. He throws the grenade in, which is very simple. I'm in there. I see the grenade hit the ground, which isn't really a grenade. It's, it's nothing. Now I press a charge, which sets off a smoke bomb. I wait for the smoke to start pouring out the turret. I hit another button which sets my uniform on fire and I come out, throw myself out the tank, roll around a bit, and then the stunt, other stuntmen put me out. End the subject. When we rehearsed this, everything's okay, but what I didn't know was that when the guy who threw the hand grenade in slams the turret shut on the tank, there is a ratchet inside and it automatically turns eight turns and locks the tank. So I'm inside now. Oh, but the, the dummy, The dummy grenade lands on the floor... So I pressed the first charge for the smoke. He slammed the top down, remember? Yeah. Now I pressed the second charge and set myself on fire. And I put my hand up to push the lid up, which is a bit heavy, but I know how I could do it because I've done it, to push it up. And when I push, it won't open. Oh, it will not open. It will not open. There is a wheel there, and I have to turn that wheel. I don't know how many times, but it was when we worked it out after the stun. Eight times I had to turn that wheel before it released the turret so I could get out. So I was inside the tank on fire with a smoke charge and my uniform on fire and no oh. way out. Brutal. So I wound up 11 days in a hospital with skin coming off my back and my arms. Oh, and that how was scary. You could have died. The worst stunt. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought I was gonna. I thought I was a goner on that. Brutal, so that, brutal. That, that was nice. But I mean, the, the, the great thing was after I did Cleopatra and that, that's where everything went crazy for me. I went back to England. Um, because I knew that I, it wasn't working in America. I was earning good money as a stuntman, but I wanted so bad to get behind that camera, I didn't know how to do it. So I had calls to go back to England. I went back and walked straight into picture after picture and became one of the stop stuntmen in, uh, in, in the world at that stage. I mean, I, and I also was playing great parts for Saturday night and Sunday morning, The Loneliness Along Distance Runner. Tom Jones gave me great credits. I did all the stunts on Tom Jones. I played the guy who, at the end with a patch over the eye that upsets Albert Finney. So in, um, Tom, in Tom Jones, you must have done a lot of horse work. Oh, I did all the I trained all the horses in that. Trained how, did, all how, the did, horses. how did you become and a horse? I'd, I'd learned to ride, which I wasn't a rider. I learned to ride in 
in Palm Springs, at, um, a smoke three miles, Kerry took me out the first time and he wouldn't give me a saddle. He said, when you can ride without a saddle, he said, I'll give you a saddle. And that's how I learned to ride and I became one of the best stump riders out there. My best subjects were high diving and horses and car turnovers. I came back here to North Carolina with Bob Mitchum and did Thunder Road. I did the turnover on that car. So I went back to England, teamed up with a friend of David Sharp, who was the stunt coordinator on Spartacus. And he knew Paddy Ryan in England. Paddy Ryan took me under his wing. And I never turned back. I mean, I was working all the, the top movies. And then I became one of the top stunt arrangers. Um, the Avengers came along and they asked me to do the arranging on the Avengers and shows like that. And the Avengers was my fame because um, I was the first man to to introduce Kung Fu to the world. No one had heard Kung Fu and Diana Rigg was the first to do it. And then when I was on that, I I wanted to, then I started the, the, the way to get in was to write, write something. So I wrote a couple of Avengers scripts. And Brian Clemens, an old school friend who was the producer on the show, bought the scripts, and I was in on that way. And then I got my side chance with Roger Moore to direct second unit and then main unit. And uh, you know the rest of the story. I mean, I'm one of the luckiest fellows in the world. I'm, so, never... so, so you went from stunts to writing as your avenue into yeah, directing. The, 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 yeah, writing. I, ma- I managed to write before. I was still stunting, and I was working the Avengers and the Department S and another couple of shows, and I wrote the, the scripts. At the same time, I was stunting on every other day on The Saints with Roger Moore. So was, was, so, there, was there a point when you realized you had to stop doing stunts if you were going to be taken seriously oh, as a director? It, absolutely, absolutely. And it was a very big decision to make because I used to earn a lot of money doing stunts. Sure. And then when Brian Clemens said to me, listen, do you, would you like to direct second unit? And God, I'm, that was the dream of my life. In those days, weekly, I would take home doing stunts somewhere around about a, probably a thousand pounds for doing different stunts here and around on different shows. Right. And when Albert and Brian asked me to be second unit director, it was 250 pounds a week. Oh, And I, I, I talked to my wife at that time. And I said, you know, I really want to direct so badly. Um, I really want to do it. And we talked and we talked, and it was a big loss of money, a great big loss of money. And in the end, I said, no, I want to do it. So I made Joey Dunlop the stunt coordinator on the Avengers, and I became second unit director. Um, And and you never looked back? No, never looked back. Then became the problem of getting out of second unit director to main unit director. Right. Because as you know, Robert, the the second unit director, you you don't have sound. You do car run-bys, people walking doubles and things like that. You very seldom get anything meaty or you're doing inserts and that sort of thing. Right. I mean, for for our audience who's not aware, a director directs the actors and the dialogue and they look for performance and matching angles and things like that. And a second unit director is generally given some scenes, go shoot these because the director's too busy or doesn't know how to shoot real action. And as you, as you said, Ray, uh, second unit director goes out with a very small crew, maybe three or four guys, and the stuntmen and the, some props, and they go off yeah. and they go off and do things, and then the director gets all the credit for it. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. You've got it. Yeah. That's that's what was was going on, and um, I knew that I wanted that other chair. And Albert and Brian, they they were booked up with directors because the Avengers people, the directors used to line up to do the Avengers because mm-hmm. it was such a popular show. 
and that I was stunting on the Saint uh, quite a lot. So I went to Bob Baker, who was the producer of the the Saint in those days, um, and and Roger Moore was the other producer. And I said to Bob, I said, you know, I've been doing second unit on the Avengers. He said, yeah. He started talking to Brian. Brian said, you're doing well. I said, Bob, I said, I want an episode of my own. I'd love to do a Saint. He said, you've got a show. I said, you're joking. He said, no. He said, we're going to give you an episode. So they gave me an episode called The People Importers, and that was my, my first break. I mean, I went on that floor first morning with a cameraman who didn't want me, the staff, because he wanted to be a director himself, so he wasn't going to be very pleased to play with me. There I am telling him where I want to go and what I want to do. But Roger and everybody else was so good. I mean, no, no one gave me any problems. Roger stood and did exactly what I wanted him to do. He didn't give me one bit of trouble. And whilst I was doing that episode, the Avengers had got a director on to direct a, a show, and he blew it. He got a quarter of the way into the show, and he didn't know what he was doing. I'd just finished doing The um, Saint, and Albert and Brian came flying around to the set with the same studio, ABC studio, the Bournemouth, and said, you want to finish a complete Avengers with actors, the whole thing? And I said, absolutely, absolutely. So I went on, salvaged the show for him. And that was it. From then on, the the phone kept ringing. I did Saints, Randall, Hopkirk's Department, S Prisoners, all the lot. Every and Black Beauty. I, I won the the Montrose Festival for Black Beauty when I did that. Well, I'm sure that when, once you stepped in and saved an episode of uh, of the Avengers, that the yeah. word word got out quickly that you could think on your feet that you could shoot a show on time, on budget, and still get performances. For our audience, television directors are really under a very, very tight schedule. And if you can't maintain a pace, you're not going to work. And in England in those days, it was a good pace because we had 10 days to shoot a show, not like we are in America, oh six, seven, and eight. We had 10 days to shoot an Avengers. Well, that's because you had tea. <laughs> But that was, it was a marvelous that that break did it all, you see. And then I stayed with the Avengers, did lots of Avengers, did lots of, I worked all the time. And then the Avengers caved. But Brian came up with the new Avengers um, with Joanne Lumley and Gareth Hunt and Patrick again, Patrick McNee. And the new Avengers went along quite nicely. And they had one show there which was called Targets. It was a new Avengers with, with, with Lumley where Lumley was going along rooftops doing lots of stunts and all that, and I directed Targets. Patrick at that, in the break time, Patrick and he would come home to, uh, to live in Palm Springs, always. And Brian says, Brian Clemens says to me one day, he said, I'm going over to see Patrick at Palm Springs. He said, I've also got a meeting with Quinn Martin because they're interested in maybe doing the Avengers in America. So he says, you want to come along? So I said, oh, yeah, great, okay, I'll come over. I've been over for a long time, and I had lots of friends in America. And at that time, so, Quinn, Quinn Martin at that time was one of the premier leading television producers. A QM production. Absolutely. He was huge. Barnaby, Barnaby Jones and all these shows. And half, half the shows he, he on television god. were Quinn Martin shows, right. Yeah, he was a god. So... Well, I come over with, with Brian to do this, and Brian's going to pitch the Avengers. So we go to Palm Springs, we visit with Patrick, swim in his pool, come up to Los Angeles, go to the studio, Quinn Martin studio. I go with Brian, and Brian goes in and has this big meeting with Quinn Martin. So whilst he was there, Brian, Quinn wanted to see an Avengers. So 
the new, new Avengers. So Brian said, I brought a couple of tips with me. So they go into Quinn's viewing room and he puts up targets on the screen. So Quinn Martin and Brian sit all the way through targets. Quinn Martin said, love it, thinks it good. He said, who directed that show? <laughs> so, so Brian said, well, Ray Austin, he's, he said he's outside in the waiting room waiting for me. He says, you're joking. He said, no, he said, I'd like to meet him. So out comes Brian. He said, come in. I go in. I meet Quinn Martin. Quinn Martin said, stay in England. He says, you're staff. Come here. He says, you'll make a fortune. So I said, that, well, very nice. He said, I'll give you work. You come here. Another fabulous break. So I leave the office um, with Brian. We go in the, the Beverly Hills Hotel. And Brian says, you should do something about this. He said, I tell you what. He said, I know a guy, he said, who, um, who would manage you. He said, because um, Quinn Martin told me about a man called David Licht. I said, okay, so I call David Licht. David Licht speaks to back to Quinn Martin's office, a, a production man called Fred Ahern. And um, David wants to meet me. So I meet David, and David says, okay, you need an agent. So I said, well, I haven't got an agent. So I'll introduce you. One. He says, I'm going to take you to lunch to meet Ronnie Leaf. So I go down, I meet this Ronnie Leaf at lunch. And Ronnie Leaf is a, 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 this guy, well, you, you knew Ronnie. Right, one of the, leading, you know one of the leading agents in town. Yeah, he was all over the way. He talked, talked, talked. You couldn't get a word in edgeways. He's going to do this, <laughs> going to do that. And he drove me insane, Terry. I go back to England. I'm living in Windsor. And I'm, first of all, I go back. Bob Baker calls me. He said, we're going to read. Roger won't do any more Saints. We're going to do it with an actor called Ian Ogilvy, the return of the Saint. Will you shoot the pilot? So I said, yes. He said, okay. Black Beauty call up and say, we're going with Black Beauty again, which I'd already won the Mon Montrose Festival for them with that. Said, will you sign on to do six Black Beauties? I said, yes. Oh, my goodness. And, and, and it was all timed out with my agent, who was Roger Hancock, in London at that time they've got that all worked out and also I was doing a show called Space 1999 which was another funny story because when they employed me to do Space 1999 I called Jerry Anderson who was the producer of Space 1999 and said I'm coming over from meeting so okay he said I want you to meet the stars so I said, okay, who are the stars? He said, Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. I said, Martin Landau's not going to believe it. I said, I was his stunt double in Hollywood. The whole thing is, I had all these shows lined up. Beautiful, wonderful. I'm working away like crazy. And I go back to Windsor one evening, and the phone goes. And, I, and, and, I'm, and, and a phone was fixed on the wall in the kitchen in that, that brilliant little house by Windsor Castle. And I'm standing there <clears throat> with a cup of tea and the phone to me. I said, hello. And this voice comes on. He says, hi, hi. <laughs> and I said, hi. He says, Ronnie here. I said, Ronnie who? He said, shit. He said, Ronnie, leave your agent. <laughs> I said, okay, yeah. He said, okay, you got a pen? I said, yeah, I got a pen. He said, well, okay. He said, I, I want you in Hawaii to shoot a Hawaii 5-0. He said, then Glenn Larson's got a pilot called Swords of Justice with Dak Rumbo. He said, you're going to do that. He said, then Quinn wants you for Barnaby Jones. He said, three Barnaby Jones. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, I don't understand. When is this? He said, oh, he said, the Hawaii thing, he said, you're going to have to be there in, in a week. I said, uh, Ronnie, I said, I can't do this. I've got contracts galore here. I said, I'm working. 
He says, shit, you're working. He says, you work. He says, I'm your agent. He said, I've got you 11 hours of primetime television, which is unheard of, he said. Unheard of. He said, you know. And, well, he was right. I, I, which it was, which I didn't realize. Yeah. He said, I, he said, I've got you booked out all the way through. He said, I need you over here. I put down the phone. And I said to my wife, and then what the hell should I do? She said, you can only go and talk to people. So first thing I called go called to Brian Clements. I said to Brian, hey, this is what's happened. He said, we've got directors here. He said, you're crazy not to do it. He said, go. Call my agent, Roger Hancock, who I've never had a contract with in my life. It was only on a handshake. I've been with him for 12 years. He said, don't worry about it. He said, go. He said, he said you can't turn this down. He said, you have to go. So sure enough, I got on a plane went to Hawaii and started. And that was it. From then on, the show after show. And as you know, for my sins, I wound up shooting 61 episodes of, of Zorro as well. And then, and then <laughs> when, you, when you made that decision to basically jump into the really big pond of Hollywood by, by accepting those offers, you suddenly found yourself kind of the guy, every, the, the go-to guy at both Universal, Quinn Martin, Spelling, Warners. Yeah. I mean, you were working everywhere. Most Every, most everywhere. directors are lucky if they can get in with one producer. But Absolutely, you, and no one ever wanted to see. We no one ever wanted to see any footage which I'd shot. Absolutely incredible. You know, when shows come up like Magnum, I salvaged the pilot of Magnum and then took over and did the first three shows. They did the two-hour shows. I did all three of those. All those shows just kept falling in my lap. The Gold Monkey, the pilot that I shot, I shot and repaired heart to heart with with R.J., who I knew R.J. for many years. Since '53, I knew R.J., but I shot that uh, love boat. I shot. I mean, now let me. I ask, can't remember. Let me ask you this question. You, well, you don't have to remember. It's all on IMDb, and you've got, <laughs> and you have directing credits that are, I think, unparalleled in their breadth and depth. Of all the series you've worked on, and you've worked on everybody's favorite shows, which one was your favorite show? If you could only shoot one more episode of one more series of anything you've done in your career, which one would it be? I'm going to surprise you now. Okay. You know that? I am going to surprise you. It would be Asher, Zora. You're kidding. No, no. That does surprise it, me. It is one of the happiest shows that I've ever worked on in my life. The reason I, I, I'm, I'm surprised is... That's a, pleasantly that, surprised. That's exactly what my answer when people ask me what show would I like to do again, because it was... As you said, a happy experience. It it was it was a great experience. There was there was never any trouble on Zorro. You work. You've you've been in this industry a long time. You've suffered the things that we have to suffer as directors and writers. Where you've got the network and the black tower climbing down your neck, telling you to do this, telling you you need another close up. You want this. You want that. And we're going to change that. We're going to do that. On Zorro. We were out there. We were a family on our own. Very seldom did we ever see anyone from the family channel and have drastic requests to reshoot this or redo that, or we weren't going to let that person do it. We were our own people out there. We, we were a family. We had a good time. It was great to get up in the morning and go to that, that location or the studio. It was a trouble-free show for me. And there was never any problem knowing the phone was going to go and someone would say, oh, we're going to recast that or we're going to do this or we need more close-ups or, or you're all not on time and one thing or another. It was a, a dream to me, that show. And as you know, I shot 61 episodes of that and camera operated all but 13. 
Well, you you know, Ray, when I was on the set just visiting, I, I saw how good you were with the actors. Do you feel like because you started out as a stuntman, that really helped you? Yeah, uh, I think because so. Because you were on the other side? I think so. I understood actors, or I think I understand actors. And I, I wasn't like a lot of the directors in Hollywood and some in England where a lot of the directors walk on a set and they say to the actors, right, you stand there, you come in there, you move over here. Immediately, you've alienated your actors for a start. You're putting your ideas into their heads and it, it's, it's not the way to direct. When I go on to a show or start a scene, I open up a room or the room is there. I put the actors in the room. I say, hey, guys, show me what you think. Show me the sh- what, what the scene is. And I let them walk it. Now, I'm not saying I will not manipulate them to go over to the other side or come closer to someone else so I can get a two shot or don't turn around there, save me doing a close up. I still do that, but I do it very craftily so it doesn't interrupt the things that they're doing. Because so many times I've seen people, and I've done it once or twice myself, force someone into doing something my way. And then they've shown me the way they were going to do it, or by accident, I've seen it, and I think to myself, what an idiot. That was so much better than what I had. Why didn't I listen and watch them do it first? Because right. it would have been much better. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of, some directors do not understand the fact that filmmaking is truly a collaborative process. Absolutely. And when, Absolutely. You don't let, when you don't let people who are creative, actors in particular, you don't let them participate, what you get is kind of a passive-aggressive response. And yeah. it, it really hurts the final product. I think one of the things that made Zorro really so wonderful for all of us, I want to. I think we should give two guys credit. One is Duncan Regeer, who was the most stand-up star of any show I've ever worked with. And the other was Gary Goodman, who was the most easygoing, hands-off producer. He let us just do the job. Everybody on that show was good. I mean, even the ones that had to leave it through the years, Zephrim and Michael Tyler and that, up until the time that they decided they weren't going to be with us anymore, they were still a joy to work with. They Absolutely. were still fun to work with. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I've always said, and I say it to this day, from the time I came out of the army and got into the industry, the film industry, I've never been to work a day in my life. Yes, I've never it, been it, to work. That's ever. true. It really is just a lot of fun when you're doing it right. Oh, a new adventure every day. Yeah. You open a script, you turn a page, you're either doing a murder, you're doing a car chase, someone in love having a dinner party. They're all new adventures every day. We got the biggest box of toys in the world to play with. Now, Ray, I always like to ask this. And since you've worked with so many, so many famous actors... Would you care to name any of your favorite and not so favorite? <laughs> I would love to shoot a whole day scene using Robert Wagner and Roger Moore okay. all day long, all day long, because they're the best in the world to work with. I mean, they are absolute great fun, good actors, and they do anything you ask them to do, and there's never any problem. And they're just good guys, yeah. Yes, just good guys. I wouldn't ever want to work again with Austin Wells. Don't like him very much. Joseph Cotton, I love another one I loved, and Joseph Cotton in Palm Springs, as you probably know, was my best man. Oh, really? Didn't oh, yeah, know he was that. my best man, Joseph. When I came over and did, started this big contract for Ronnie Leaf, I then went to do a show called Love Boat. In amongst all that stuff, I did Love Boat. Right. And now you've got to think this is a Cockney boy, grew up in the war years in London, dodging bombs, going to Saturday morning pictures or going to the pictures with my mum and dad in the week and seeing the big American stars in their black and white movies and all these famous people. I walk onto the set 
of Love Boat after I'd already cast with everybody, you know, and as you know, you don't get much say in the casting as a director in those shows because they know who they want, the producers. Aaron Spelling had his own Rolodex, right? Yeah, they got that. But I walk onto the set to shoot an episode of Love Boat, and this was my lineup. Joseph Cotton, Olivia de Havilland, Farley Granger, Don Amici, Cesar Romero, and Helen Hayes. Well, you, now, don't, you is, don't get bigger this, than that in the pantheon This is this Cockney boy walking on there with his script under his arm to go and sit in his chair, which says, Director, I'm going to direct these people who I remember going and watching with my mum and dad uh-huh. at the cinema, the Regal, in Wimbledon and South Wimbledon during the war years. It was mind-blowing, absolutely oh, it, mind-blowing. That, that is an incredible transition. You see, I've had the best of it. I mean, no one who's coming into the industry now, and a lot of them that are already in it, are never going to have the, the life what I had. No. They're never going to shoot the scenes which I've shot and the memories I have of, of the film industry and what the film industry is about. It's never going to happen again. Those days are gone. I mean, I, I worked Cleopatra. I knew Elizabeth. I knew Richard very well. Well, Ray, I have to ask you, because this is the question that I know our audience would love for me to ask, is just how beautiful was Elizabeth Taylor in person? She's very beautiful. She was very, very beautiful girl. I knew Elizabeth Taylor since 1953. I used to be friends with her, Roddy McDowell, Mickey Rooney, and Jackie Cooper. And they were all gangs together, and we used to play and laugh, and Hoy was there, because Hoy knew them all, but Elizabeth was very, very beautiful. I would say top of the rack in those days for me was the most beautiful, I think, was Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Sid Charisse. Sid Charisse was a knockout. Ava Gardner, knockout. Sophia Loren. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, boy, so far, in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, great. She, she threw me into the Thames so far, in on a picture called The Millionaires. Ah. I, doubled, I doubled Dennis Price on that, and she threw me into the Thames so far on that one. You but thing. I'd already met so far in Spain when we did Pride and the Passion. So, Ray, we've taken up so much of your time already, and I really appreciate it. I want to ask you a couple more questions. One is for our audience of people who, who think that Hollywood is where they need to be, what advice would you give to those hoping to make it in the business today? One thing I would think is one of the best things to do, which I wish I'd have done, but unfortunately I got on without it all right, is get in, go, go via editing, because it's a great experience to find out what happens to that piece of film once it's gobbled up by that camera and comes out the other end. I mean, a lot of people don't understand the art of editing and what you can do and what you can't do. Right. Um, so they think, you know, that you just point a camera and it comes through on a disc now or on a chip or on whatever it is, mm-hmm. and that's it. Know how you edit that and how you can manipulate that piece of film which you've shot. I think that's one of the places to go. The other thing is have another job so you can pursue it. You, you, you can't go into this industry cold as an actor, especially as an actor, unless you've got a backup. Um, so many people think that they're going to walk in the door, get the audition, and it's over. It's not. You've got to have another profession. You know, it's a sad way to say it, but they have to. But to go in the director's chair, it's hard work. There's a lot of directors out there, but I still think the best. They put it on the page, then so many people put their hands on it or put it in their computer and do rewrites and changes and think they know better that the original thing is not there anymore. 
I'm not explaining this very well, but I get disappointed. I read a script, or I used to read a script, and it used to read beautifully, but the time I got to go to the floor with it, so many other people have made changes and done things, the original concept had gone. You know, you think back to, to great movies, Strangers on a Train, you know, um, where, where they were beautiful movies, well thought out, well plotted, and the, the pace was absolutely wonderful they're not there anymore people change there's so many writers involved in one thing now as producers stroke producer stroke producer yeah i don't want to say anything yeah. about executives but they seem to have some impact these days and i think well, that's they have one, a lot of impact that's one of the things that made zorro such a great experience for me as a writer you and i and philip taylor basically made that show happen from a story and script standpoint nobody was yeah. nobody was interfering which leads you, me to the, yeah let me let me tell a story about you as a writer on that bloody show. <laughs> I, for, for the audience, our audience point of view, imagine shooting Zora out in a place called Colmenar in Spain on a flat piece of desert where we built a little Los Angeles in this little shrubland, and I would get scripts through from our dear friend Robert McCullough, and it would say, as often as not, in practically every other script, Zorro jumps out of the tree, or Zorro swings into the tree, or the man hides in the tree. And I called Robert, or you, one day, and I said, don't do this to me. There are no fucking trees here. <laughs> I said, you wait until you come here. You'll see for yourself. And sure enough, you came and directed some shows. Right, and you right. saw it. We didn't have any bloody trees. There's no trees and hotter than hell. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, every writer used to put it in the script. Zorro rides under the tree. There are no bloody trees, I kept saying. <laughs> there aren't any trees here. There were a couple of bushes, as I recall. Right, yeah, they right. were bushes. Right, <laughs> Now, now, now you—you have not—you're simply a ceaseless creative force, and I want to touch upon Beaufort Sloan. Tell us about your novel career. You have what four or five books out now, don't you? Well, four. Well, when we were when we were shooting in Spain, Wendy was over in Spain with me, um, staying at an apartment. She's got bored with it. She said, "I'm going to write a book." So she sat down in that apartment where we were living while I was shooting out the Coleman and she wrote her first book, um, Leave the Killing to Me, right. and got it published. And she, and she wrote Dead on Cue, and the latest one of hers is Walking the Ladies. But the whole point was is that I got a little bit jelly belly. I got a little bit jealous over it when it was going on and that and thought of her writing and one thing or another. I want to write a book. I want to write a book. So years later, I sat down and I wanted to write a book. So I came up with this character called Buford Sloan, which was Wilfred Brimley. Right. And I said to Wilfred, I said, listen, I'm going to write a book and the character is going to be based on you. Is that, do you mind? He said, no, do what you like. He said, use it. Because I was doing Our House with him at that stage, shooting the show Our House. And um, so I started writing this book and it got more like Wilfred Brimley than it did Buford Sloan. And so I called Wilfred again. I said to him, listen, I know I, you said I could do this, but it's really turning out to be you. I said, not Buford Sloan. I mean, it really, he said, it's okay. I, I don't mind. And he also said to me, and, and to work with you, he said, I wear boots two sizes too small and walk 50 miles to work with you as a director, which I thought was a great, nice thing for him to say for me. So, anyway, I, so I wrote Buford Sloan. And then uh, I wrote three Buford Sloans, then I wrote a thriller. But unless you've got a bestseller, and you really have a bestseller, you're not going to make a living out of writing books. You've really got to sit down and want to write. But I wrote three of those. I guess I've done a lot more than that one. But, but 
you can't earn a living being a writer unless you uh, have, have, have got a bestseller. Well, let's make it a bestseller. I want the audience to know all your books are available at Amazon.com. It'll be on our website. That's, uh, it, it, I, I, just, I compliment you because I, I know a lot of people who say they're going to write a book. And they never do. And they never put their butt in the chair. Now, Ray, uh, something I want to touch upon really quickly. Um, you are the only baron that I know. And would you like to touch upon how that happened? Well, it's not that I was the baron. I, I was deeded the title from Wendy's side of the family right. so, that she could, so that she could keep her title. When she, came, when she married me, she became a missus. Uh-huh. Missus. But to keep her title as lady at uh, that stage, which she was, she would have to be married to someone who was a lord or a baron or something. And her great-grandfather and his grandfather had that title of the Baron of Delvin. And I then was deeded that title through the barony and through the heraldry of Ireland to take the Irish title, um, which purely did that for me. So I became the Baron de Vere Austin of Delvin. And Wendy stays as the Baroness de Vere Austin of Delvin. Well, I must say, you are, you are the first member of royalty to be no, a guest. No, it's not royalty. To be a guest. Not royalty. <laughs> it's not royalty. It take, I think it's 7,933 people and I could be king. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, well, you never know. Things happen. No. You know? Ray, you're actually closer no. than Bob is. <laughs> right. Well, well, I know, yeah, but it's an hereditary title. It's not, it's not through my family. It's, well, it's great. Title. It's great fun, and and it's been great fun talking to you. I can't tell well, you. It's much nice we, talking to you guys. I can't it tell really you how is. much we appreciate this, and I think that your story is it's a piece of history, and it's inspirational because I think it shows that people who put themselves out there, good things happen. If you had if you had been a, a reluctant individual who was not who was afraid to to step forward. If you didn't take that punch on the chin, things never may have gone this way. A few years ago, I think four years ago, something like that, they asked me to be key speaker at um, Chichester University for the 50th anniversary of the Avengers. And I walk in through the auditorium onto the stage, and the lights were halfway up. There was over 300 people in there, and most of them, as far as I'm concerned, were children. There was very few people of my age. How could these people know the Avengers? How could, they're all too young. I think that shows that what we do actually matters. Oh, it does. Ray, before we let you go, I'm just dying to ask you, because I know I'll be asked about this regarding you and your voice. How many times have people said to you, you sound like Cary Grant? It still happens, probably once a day. Still happens. Now, before you met him, did you sound like him? Yes, for the simple reason. You see, uh, Carrie was a Cockney as well. Well, he ah. wasn't a Cockney. He was born in Bristol, but he grew up in London, so he was a Cockney. And he knew he had to get out of that Cockney accent. That he wouldn't work. But once he tried to change the Cockney accent, that's when his accent arrived. Tell me, what do you do besides lure men to their doom on the 20th Century Limited? That's how it all happened because you see, if you're a Cockney, you're sort of speaking like that, ain't you? And you, you know, you're, you're like saying whatever Beatles. you want. I mean, the Beatles yeah. had yeah, like that the Beatles accent. used to do. You know what I mean, love? That's the way it has to go, <laughs> and that's the way you're going to talk. You see, now if I'm going to slow that down and something to make it sound better so the Americans can understand me, mm-hmm. I've really got to try to slow that down and see if I can get someone to understand me. So it's better that I do it that way. So if I practice. 
well, you know what I mean. So I practice and I've got this now. And I love you and I think you're marvelous. <laughs> That's funny. Ray, this has been fantastic. I love you, man. I can't thank you enough for this. And please send our love to Wendy. I will do. And when you get a show underway, don't forget, I've still got lots of energy and I'll come and direct. Trust trust me on that. (laughs) You you got it, man. All right. Okay, God bless. Very best. Bye-bye. Okay, God bless. Bye-bye. I just loved interviewing Ray. You know, he's a source of real Hollywood history. Just fascinating stuff. So what was it with you with the trees? He mentioned that well, you kept putting well, trees yes, in every yes. scene at Zorro. Well, I was writing and producing, and half the time I wasn't even in Spain with Ray. Ray was there all the time, in the heat, the wind, the snow, where, the rain. Where were you? I was in Hollywood writing the scripts. It was a it was an intercontinental kind of a production. It was fascinating how we pulled this thing off. No, but I, I So I was, so Philip Taylor and I were sitting sitting around in Hollywood, we're writing scripts about what's going on in Spain, and we're describing action sequences that, you know, people jump out of trees. I'm surprised you didn't put palm trees in there since you were in Santa Barbara. (laughs) I would love to have. You know, we were really shooting out in the middle of the desert, and it was very frustrating for Ray, I'm sure, to get a script that said, and Zorro jumps out of a tree. I think that was quite a compliment he gave you regarding it was his favorite show to work on hey you know what uh ray is the one who made it happen i think it must have been the sangria it could have been the sangria and you know and we had a you know i just recall we had a fabulous time with him and his wife wendy in in madrid lovely people it was great i'm just so glad we had a chance to talk to him now listen before we go i want to remind our listeners be sure to go to the website at wherehollywoodhides.com and take a look at our new book where Hollywood hides Santa Barbara. Celebrities in Paradise. It's a hardcover, full-color edition. It's available on Amazon, where you can go straight to our website at wherehollywoodhides.com and pick it up with free shipping. You'll save yourself five or six bucks. It's a great, quick read and fabulous pictures. And it's a fabulous Valentine's gift for mom. That's true. Okay, well, thanks for listening. This is Bob McCullough. And this is Suzanne Herrera McCullough, and we'll see you at the movies. From Chillicothes and Paducahs With their bazookas To get their names up in lies All armed with photos From local rotos With their hair in ribbons And legs in tights Hooray for Hollywood You have no way of knowing Who'll make good Maybe you'll be another Papa Dion Your name and me on If you get lucky you could Yes, buddy, you'll arrive if you can top his fire. Hooray for Hollywood. Hooray for Hollywood.